Before we get started, After the Monuments is proud to receive support from VCU Massey Cancer Center. Massey Cancer Center wants you to imagine a future without cancer. All it takes is one, a revolutionary idea, a promising clinical trial, or a new breakthrough. See how Massey is developing new approaches to prevent and treat cancer for every person in every community. Learn more about this future for everyone at MasseyCancerCenter.org. I'm Kelly Lemon. And I'm Michael Paul Williams. And welcome to the After the Monuments podcast, where we look at events and news about race in a historical context and see how, too often, history repeats itself. Welcome to After the Monuments, a real talk about race. Kelly Lemon, Michael Paul Williams. We are so excited to be back again with you all. Um, And we're revisiting some of the things that we've already talked about. um, And it is mainly about once those monuments came down, how those things are still happening before and after the monuments have come down. And environment is one of those things that we've kind of gotten into and we know how it plays a factor in in race but we have an expert with us today who are you who do you work for and what are you doing in the community with environment thank you so much for having me uh on the show i am a fan and a listener <laughs> awesome. um i am Sheree Shannon i am one of the co-founders of Southside Relief which is an environmental justice organization here in the city of Richmond where we focus on improving health outcomes and expanding green spaces, uh, specifically in South Richmond. And, you know, a lot of us wear many hats. I am one of those folks who wears multiple hats. And so I'm also the owner and director of Shannon Strategies, which is a communications firm that specializes in policy advocacy and progressive politics. And if that was not enough, go ahead. I also have my own radio show. Yes, yes, come okay. through. Okay. Uh, Women in Politics on WRAR. So why have we been on? Well, women, women, Paul, <laughs> women, in, yeah. <laughs> but it said in politics, so you know, I stay no, far away from all it, of that. It's the, it's the end part, right? Okay. It's uplifting everyone in the work they're doing in the community. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, Michael Paul and I are just excited that we got a black environmentalist. Yeah, I I mean, I felt like I sh- struck gold. I, <laughs> I um, I, I think I, I met you. I bumped into you on Hall Street yes. when you were in the middle of um, the hills, mm-hmm. Hall Street takeover. And um, I found out she was an African-American environmentalist. I'm like, oh, yes. yes. Because, I mean, when I was in college, um, in grad school, one of my beats was covering in D.C. like the Sierra Club and all the environmental groups. Mm. And just it was just such, this is 1980, so I'm dating myself, it's just such a lily white movement it mm-hmm. seemed like. Can you, can you speak to just that history of yeah. it, just why, why that is and why we have not gravitated toward that movement? What's interesting to me, I think, as we talk about like the environmental movement and then there's conservation, So in this country, especially, we have seen historically how a lot of white landowners and ranchers, um, even President Teddy Roosevelt, they were into like recreation and hunting and fishing. Um, And so there was this effort, this movement to protect our national parks and protect a lot of these federal lands or what they made federal lands, even though they displaced and killed Native peoples in order to claim these spaces. Um, And so over time, there has been this whitewashing of the land and how we use land and how we protect it, primarily for white people in their interests. 
when in reality, when you look at the history of this country, who actually has managed the lands, right? You look at Native and Indigenous people, they're the first fire experts. Mm-hmm. They're the folk, first folks who understood how to grow and to produce. And then we have the 400 years of Black, the slavery in this country and the enslavement of folks. And we also are in the agricultural space. We actually, we also understand how to cultivate, how to grow, how to produce, and really how to preserve as well. But when you think about who's in power and their interests, their political interests, their economic interests, it has generally been white folks who were like, we want to move to a specific area. We want to build here. This is what we want to do with the land around us. And it has been black and brown people, unfortunately, who have been exploited for their labor to protect that land. So we, even in the last 50, 60 years, you have Rachel Carson and Silent Springs and the, the poisons that's being used. And everyone's like, oh, man, we have to do something. But like black and brown folks, we already been there, mm-hmm. Right. We just didn't add a label to it. We didn't say, like, now we are environmentalists and we are conservationists. And that's where I think we start to see that difference of the whitewashing of this movement um, and even our relationship to land. So I have a grandfather who was a sharecropper. Mm. He knew how to grow stuff, right? He had acres and acres of land. Technically, my grandfather would be a black environmentalist because we lived off the land. But do white people see it that way? No. So it's like we're starting to catch up a little bit. But my interpretation has always been like who's been in power, what their interests have been, and really what has motivated them to actually like interact and how they want to engage with the land around us. Wow. When just when you frame it that way, this is, you know, black and indigenous people have a connection to the land mm-hmm. here in America that's unique. But when people were out marching after George Floyd, the, the, the focus was very much on, on law enforcement yeah. and the criminal justice system. And I didn't really, maybe I missed it, but I didn't really sense or hear a lot about environmentalism. And, and climate change and and, and, and all of that that very much impacts us. Um, is that did you discern that also? And why is that the case that that didn't become a more concentrated focus in the aftermath? Again, it's who's telling the stories, right? So, like, if we want to look at Monument Avenue here, and I always say this, Monument Avenue is the physical manifestation of white supremacy. Like it, that is exactly what it is. And so when we are looking at the intersections of environmental justice and climate justice, all of that is rooted in economic power. We're talking about health, the social determinants of health. We're looking at home ownership and land use, zoning, some of the unsexy things that we don't really want to get into. All of that is at play here, but it's how we're talking about it and who is using those terms. So black folks know in their neighborhoods, especially in the South Side, you can live in the 8th and 9th districts. It's hot outside because there are no trees there, right? But if you're within like a white-led organization, you might be like, that is a climate issue. It is a climate issue. We're not using the same vocabulary all the time. 
So even another example, what's happening in Atlanta with Cop City. I just learned about this last it's night. It's wild. And I, and yeah, and I, I, I felt bad that I just learned about this last night. You are not alone. It, you are not alone. Yeah. So essentially there is this uh, proposal to develop this training facility um, in the middle of like this forested land. And the reason why it's getting a lot of attention now is one of the forest protectors was killed by the police. And so we see those intersections again, as you were talking about, uh, Michael Paul. Wrong with so many yeah. the whole the whole scheme. Is it's awful. It's numbers. awful. And I and I I just I keep coming back to like we have to think about the environmental space as like where people live and the environment around them and how it was designed. Mm -hmm. Is it designed to keep you safe and healthy? Has there been decades of disinvestment? Who's pouring resources to making sure that your family and your community has everything that it needs to thrive? That is how I look at those intersections, especially when it comes to the justice movement. Can, can you talk, you just, we just touched on it. Can you okay. talk about urban heat islands for mm -hmm. those who don't know what they are? Ooh, urban heat islands, y'all. It's hot. Yeah. When it's summertime, it gets hot. So essentially, um, we have areas in urbanized areas. I like to say urbanized because we're starting to see this in the suburbs as well, where uh, due to redlining and urban renewal, there was a lot of effort to essentially raise through neighborhoods. Uh, there's a lot of impervious surfaces, impervious meaning roads, sidewalks, mm -hmm. right? Asphalt, basically. And there's not a lot of green spaces and green canopy cover. There are not a lot of trees. And so we see this urban heat island effect, which basically says in areas where there's less canopy cover, where there's fewer green spaces, it is hotter because there's more things that have been paved over in those areas. And unfortunately, here in the city of Richmond, we have a lot of heat islands um, in the east end, downtown, as well as in the south side. And when it is warm outside, it can be up to 16, 18 degrees hotter in those areas where we have heat islands compared to more affluent parts of the city, such as like the West End, which has really nice shade and trees and parks and things like that. And I saw, I mean, a stat last night said you will live 20 years longer if you live in certain areas where these heat islands are not. Yes. 20 years. Yes. It's a combination of things. We're talking about the social determinants of health, right? So we have uh, life expectancy is contingent on you being able to access fresh foods. So we're seeing neighborhoods, like especially in Southside, don't have access to grocery stores. Mm -hmm. We have higher concentrations of poverty, not being able to go to the grocery store, not having, far like not having um, access to doctors and pharmacies. So it's like all of these things combined contribute to having a shorter life expectancy in certain parts of the city. And on top of that, yes, the environment and where you live can exacerbate extreme health disparities. And if you're, if you're in a low-income community in this situation, you're less likely to have, say, central air conditioning or mm -hmm. the sorts of things that 
could exacerbate your health issues. Yeah. In a hot house. Yeah. I mean, and also what we don't talk about enough in Richmond, Richmond is an asthma capital, which means that if you have some type of, of asthma or respiratory illness, we are one of the worst cities to live in. Mm. It's awful. Like for a 2014 to 2018, Richmond was in the top five for being an asthma capital. A lot of this is preventable. In the last few years, we've seen no improvement when it comes to the number of asthma-related deaths or asthma-related emergency department visits here in the city. That says to me that we are not addressing root causes that's causing a lot of these uh, health disparities. We're talking asthma, diabetes, heart disease, um, other chronic illnesses that if you live in a house that don't doesn't have AC when it's hot outside or it's not energy efficient even during the winter time, if your kid's going to school that has mold in it, it's so many factors that's going to add up to you, again, having a shorter life expectancy. And it's ironic. Um, we were talking earlier about um, the legislature here in Virginia um, just um, decided not to appoint or sign off on the appointment of the health director. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about all these um, race, these health issues in which race is a, a, a determinant, race and income. And he was in denial about that. He sure. was on record saying that race is, is not a determinant in health. Oh, Lord. When I saw that, I was like, <laughs> sweetheart, are we looking at the same data? What is going on? That is, uh, it's scary to me to have someone in that position to completely ignore what the disaggregated data is showing us. If we're having, if you're looking at a population of folks, again, coming back to Richmond here, and you're seeing in a certain zip code, those folks who have shorter life expectancy also may have lower educational attainment, also have lower incomes, um, may have additional issues when it comes to substance abuse. Like, and we see like, oh, well, it's really happening towards Black and Latinos, right? If we're seeing that even after Medicaid expansion, um, we, the number of children who still don't have access to health insurance is a higher percentage of Black and Brown children. That is extremely alarming to me. And it's also very scary that I'm like, bruh, mm -hmm. you the health director? <laughs> what what do we know? Like who's setting the policy priorities in the agenda? Well, it, it's it's politics, not policy. I mean, you recall we had an attorney general, Ken Cuccinelli, who went after in in, in really disgraceful way a, a climate scientist at the University of Virginia and basically ran him out of the the, the science is essentially settled on this, mm -hmm. but because of the politics, Ken Cuccinelli decided that, you know, to preach denial. And it just seems like a lot of that is what determines the health policy and, and environmental policy. I guess the lobbyists, the, the political influence, it, it just, you know, data, they don't care about the data or they just want to deny the data or distort it, it seems like. Denying the data and also just simply denying people's existence. Mm -hmm. And that is very hurtful to know that I'm looking at my nieces and nephews and I'm like, you don't want to acknowledge 
these children. You don't want to acknowledge folks' stories and their experiences, where they're living right now, their challenges. And then what's even more hurtful is for the advocates who go to the General Assembly and they talk to their representatives or even a city council and they're pouring their heart out and folks just ignore them as if they mean nothing. That I find to be very disingenuous. And that is part of the uphill battle when it comes to policy and politics. It's like making sure that the folks in positions of power are able to hear us and recognize us, especially when they're making decisions. Can you talk about your work with Southside Relief? Yeah. Well, before you do that, okay. <clears throat> because I want to, how did we even get, how did you even get there? <laughs> like when you were a kid, where did you grow up? What did you see when you were a kid? You know, and I, I kind of want to, you know, lead into how you got to Southside Relief. Like what was your passion in it? Yeah. Um, so as a kid, I actually lived in Churchill mm -hmm. on Tuxedo Boulevard off of Nine Mile Road. And I always say that because I'm very proud of that house, even though it was a shotgun house. But I was very proud of that home because um, my granny lived down the street. And what granny did was she would take us to the cemetery next door to visit my papa. Mm -hmm. um, that was my first visit to green spaces mm. like a cemetery like black folks we do that right we like you, you sit and you go have a picnic you talk yep. to your loved ones that was kind of my first interaction with green spaces but it was also interesting living on that street and I didn't realize it at the time like that environmental racism I'm kind of like I-64 is behind my house urban renewal right I learned that later mm -hmm. and then there used to be a city landfill down there. Again, more environmental racism. And so my parents said that they had to get us out of there because when it would rain, the smell was so bad that we'd all be nauseous and get headaches. Wow. Right. Um, but eventually we moved to Hanover. So I'm from <laughs> I'm from Ashland. Mm -hmm. um, completely different experience, is, right? Your, your, your experience mirrors mine, by the way. Go on. It does. Go on. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the county and there's like trees and it's country. And so I'm really more of a country girl, especially since my, parent, my grandparents had a farm in New Kent. So mm -hmm. that's my jam. Um, but the people around me were into the environmental space. Okay. So like my dad actually started off as a forestry major. Mm -hmm. um, my mom was like really good at gardening. My grandparents in New Kent, you know, like I said, my grandfather was a share, former sharecropper, but my grandma actually was a forest technician at uh, for the Forest Service in New Kent. She was like one of the first black women, black people, period, really, to do that type of work. So she knew how to grow and to cultivate and to garden. And then I had another grandparent who uh, grew up in Rose Hill, North Carolina, on a farm. So it was like I was always around people who knew how to grow, who had a special relationship with the land and who taught me about resilience. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was making the decision to go to college, I actually started I wanted to be a journalism major. And unfortunately, I had a teacher who was like, sure, you're not a good writer. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay. Wow. I know, right? I'm in communications now. Eh, yeah. Pretty wrong. Uh, um, <laughs> what teacher does that? Your job is to, even if you, if listen. that's true, your job is to teach, not to. Michael Paul, I had, I had a similar one that told me I'd never get into UVA. Oh. 
It's it was it was bad. Uh, yeah, That's the kind uh, of tea out in Hanover too. So anyway, yeah, yeah, was, we can talk about that bad. later. So my That's another episode. That's a whole nother episode. <laughs> yes. 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 Dreams. yes, yes. God, it's so bad. Uh so my backup was meteorology. Because I love tropical storms and hurricanes. And so I was like, I'm going to study meteorology. So where do you go for meteorology? Penn State, <laughs> uh, the home of AccuWeather. And I, I get to school, and these people are die hard weather nerds mm. and i'm like that's not my ministry mm -hmm. like i gotta get up at 8 a.m to go to class and y'all are nerding out this way about the weather i said mm, maybe that's not for me <laughs> but i still wanted to be in that space and so i chose earth sciences because it allowed me to dabble into like media geography geology a little bit geosciences um and i always knew that i wanted to be the facilitator between scientists and the public mm -hmm. i didn't know that was called communications so mm. i figured that out later after i graduated um but yeah so like i have this earth sciences degree my minor is in climate change climatology even decades ago i knew that's where we were headed basically the aforementioned scientist from uva ended up at penn state right I think mm -hmm. patrick michaels i think is his name he ended up oh so yeah yeah um no i don't know i just and it was like it's interesting being in that space because it's like i'm black and i'm woman yeah we the i mean how many other black kids were in your in my program i was the only one out of like that year of 140 i was mm. the only one wow. mm. yeah there were only five <clears throat> six women that year who graduated with me i stood out in a lot of ways a lot a lot of ways and i continue to be in these white spaces even when i worked in dc so my first job was at american forest um, and so that was interesting doing that programmatic work, being at a nonprofit organization where the black folks who were there were really more on the admin operational side. Mm. And I was doing more of the programmatic education stuff. That also is another episode for y'all to impact, <laughs> okay. like being in those workspaces. Okay. Yeah. Um, were folks like, you know, in performance of that job, did you get second glances like? Yes. Or did they question weird. why, if you were qualified to be there? They too? did. They did question my qualifications. They, you know, if I'm looking at materials or reading reports and they felt the need to explain concepts to me, and I'm like, baby girl, yeah. no, yeah. I know, I get it. Yeah. Like, I, right. Um, but yeah, so like, I worked there for about a decade, left, briefly moved to Australia. Um, <laughs> Because my husband had a contract there. That also was wild. Like hearing and experiencing the stories um, with the Aboriginal people, which mm. is mirrors a lot of what has happened here. Mm. That's a whole nother show too. In this Ooh. country. Yeah. Um, Where were you in Australia? Melbourne. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it was like, it was kind of, there was a lot of privilege that I had in being a, an American. Mm -hmm. But there also was like a lot of similarities. I hear the racism now. It's, just by reputation, yeah. racism is acute there. Yes, it's so. Almost all dark-skinned people are called black. So you can be from Bangladesh if you're dark-skinned. You're black over there. 
um, folks heard my accent and somehow my blackness went away, which I was like, wait, how is that? Like, I could see in the middle of conversation people being like, oh, she's cool because she's American. Mm. But they wanted to ignore my blackness as well. That was wild to me. Um, yeah. Experienced that here. Yeah, that was, I was like, does my credit score go up because yeah. of that? Like, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, right. Does, I mean, do my edges stay? Yeah, so, like, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I had, so essentially to go back to how we got to Southside Relief, just years and years of experience. And ultimately when my husband and I decided to move, when we moved back to the States and we were like, we're going to move to Richmond because my family's here. We lived on Hull Street mm-hmm. and across the street from the library. And I'm like, this is not okay. Like, what is going on here? And so, you know, I'm of the belief, don't just create something for the sake of creating it. Reach out to folks who are in the neighborhood. And I did. But I was like, there's still a need here. And so uh, Amy Wentz and I, we were part of like the Richmond 300 planning process. We were on different working groups. And we were reading the insights report. And we both had the same reaction where we're like, WTF, Mm -hmm. this, no, it's too much stacked up against us, especially when it comes to like environment and green spaces. So we linked up in the summer of 2019 in the middle of a heat wave. Mm -hmm. And I do remember that. And I was like, this is why we are starting this organization. So our mission is very simple. It is to improve the quality of life for people in South Richmond through green spaces and people-powered advocacy. We want to close that life expectancy gap. And the way that we do that is by planting. So actual planting trees, building community gardens, uh, education. We want to make sure that we are empowering our neighbors, giving them the tools and resources so they can advocate for the changes that they want to see. And then, of course, knocking on those doors and raising hell in the halls of power mm-hmm. because you can say a lot of things. Yeah, it's climate change is real and we have this climate equity action plan. Okay, but where is it in the budget? If you're not investing those dollars, the capital improvement dollars, the city dollars year over year, if you're not actively trying to advocate at the, the general assembly for money, what are we doing? It's just all lip service. So that was like a, a roundabout way of, of how, how we how got. How many trees have you all planted? Um, we have planted and given away more than 850 trees. Wow. Um, all South Richmond. Mm. Yeah, folks from the north side try to come to the tree giveaways, and we're like, where you live? <laughs> we're like, okay. We, we ain't got we no got, trees got in got our block either. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. like, okay. Somebody so, got, north side relief is going to be started next year, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's what Groundwork is for. Oh, shout out, right. shout out right, to yeah. Rob at Groundwork, yeah. RVA, yeah. and what they're doing over there. But yeah, I mean, listen, if y'all are like, how can I help? A donation goes a long way mm-hmm. so you can go to southside relief that's r-e-l-e-a-f dot org give a donation and also come get dirty with us get yeah. your hands in the dirt come plant well, trees that's a nice slogan yeah come get dirty come with get us. dirty with us yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> see I'm, I, I'm a consultant yeah. all right <laughs> Look at that. all right we'll, we'll, we'll get a t-shirt printed out for you yeah especially when he comes and gets his hands dirty yeah. right he get it that day <laughs> now, now things have changed he'll write about it for you yeah, yeah. That's budget. 
my host controversy history with the Valentine Museum. And last night was about green space um, and just climate change and things of that nature. And Dr. Uh, Jeremy Hoffman from the Science Museum was just kind of rattling off some stats. But one of the things that um, we didn't get to kind of get into, and it was one of the questions um, with, that I was going to ask the panel, but it was about the future. And it was about, you know, how these kids are feeling about climate change and the anxiety and the nervousness that they have about their future. Um, we never thought about it. You know, us, my age group is, we probably the worst with it. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, my parents and them definitely are, aren't thinking about it. But um, can you talk a little bit about the future and how it might be on our minds. Yeah, you know, I actually want to say I'm hopeful okay. about the next generation because they are invested and they do care. And, um, you know, like I just mentioned what is happening at Groundwork RVA, like those young people are with it. Like they are planting, they are maintaining spaces, but they're also gaining a lot of skills um, to further their careers down the road if that's what they pursue. We also have seen a lot of, we meaning Southside Relief, we have seen a lot of middle and high school students at our events. They want to participate in our town halls. They want to learn more. And that makes me excited mm -hmm. because those folks are not only going to pick up the mantle and do the work that we're doing at Southside Relief, some of them are going to run for public office mm -hmm. one day. Some of those people are going to be business owners. They might become educators themselves. And so having that interest and that passion and also the skills makes me really hopeful that we are going to be okay in the future. Mm -hmm. Now, and I have to be hopeful, right? Because my mama said you got to be hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I mean, I'm old. I'm not going to be here <laughs> when all hell breaks loose, although all hell is breaking loose Already, mm -hmm, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, it's just, it kind of amazes me. Why aren't people of a certain age group, young people, marching in the streets every day? Because we're literally pissing away their planet. I mean, why isn't that happening? They are, but then also in this country, there. I feel like we can have a march every day. We have gun violence. We have student loan debt. The police are killing us. I mean, it's like, honestly, I feel like I'm tired most of the time. And I'm, you know, and I'm like, and I hear from like older generations that like, look, we was out there in these streets. We need y'all to pick up the mantle. And I feel that. And I feel I'm like, I'm moving into my auntie stage in mm -hmm. life where I'm kind of like, okay, young people, I need y'all to kind of get mm -hmm. some energy as well. I don't want to dismiss what is happening, but I do agree. I think that more can and should be done. I also think that folks might feel, I don't know, like disempowered because of the current state of affairs. It's like if you do raise your voice or you, you make your concerns known and then it doesn't go anywhere. And you feel defeated. And a lot of people feel defeated. So for us in the environmental space, I feel like that's one of the few tangible things that you can see, right? So in your neighborhood, when you see new trees being planted and they are lasting 
over the course of years, you're like, somebody not only made that investment, but continued to make that investment. We don't always see that, especially mm. within our communities. So I want to see more young people involved because they do have that anxiety. They are concerned, especially when they see that adults continue to fail them time and time again. I just hope that folks don't become too defeated where we just become complacent about it and then nothing happens because that's how we end up losing. Can we talk a little about um, the late Congressman Donald McEachin, um, who it seemed to me, and I really loved him for this, it seemed like he was about this issue. Yeah, he was. Um, in a way that I don't really see mm -hmm. as much as I would like. Yeah. Um, Representative McEachin was an environmental justice champion, period. And a lot of people will say, I care about the environment. They don't carry legislation. Mm. They're not hosting town halls. They're not doing tours. He introduced the Environmental Justice for All Act. He was here last summer in Richmond and throughout Central Virginia hosting town halls and listening sessions. He specifically set up meetings with us to have to get our feedback on stuff. And and everything, something small is saying, like, I'm going to earmark dollars for sidewalks. I'm going to earmark dollars so that these worships, places of worship can actually get like rain barrels and like solar panels and stuff. It seems so small, but it's really significant. Yeah. And he carried a lot of legislation to make sure that folks, regardless of where you live, regardless of your race, your income, that you would not be given the raw shaft by the government for corporations to come in and build pipelines in your backyard, um, you know, for eminent domain to take over, for the big energy entities to just pollute the air. He really, really was an incredible champion when it comes to environmental justice. And I would like to see more of Virginia's delegation take up a lot of those causes as well. What are we not being loud? What are we not being loud about? Like what needs some attention right now? Because there's an action item that we could all do in order to, you know, combat it a little bit. We need money. Uh, like, city council, hey, listen, what's good? What are coins at? <laughs> Come on, this budget. I think what people don't understand, and I'm, let me not say people, what a lot of policymakers and politicians don't understand is that health is at the center of all of this. Mm. We are not just advocating for the environment for the sake of just clean air and water. We need clean air and clean water because people need clean air and clean water. Our children need these basic necessities. And so when you start to strip away health and you don't talk about housing, if you don't make those things work together, then it's not going to have a long lasting effect. 
So we need soldiers. Like, we need folks to show up at council and be like, what's good? Mm -hmm. Okay? You talked a lot about putting sidewalks in. You talked about planting trees. You talked about giving us access to community gardens. But we don't even have the city personnel to maintain a lot of these spaces. We are not training folks to have these jobs in these places. We're not, and if they have those jobs, they're not being paid adequately the way that they should. And on top of that, we're not creating programs and services that will target specific resources that communities need. So if whenever we go into a neighborhood of Southside Relief, if we're planting trees, great. Okay, what else needs to be done to this playground? Mm -hmm. Okay, they don't have sidewalks here. We, there's a lot of potholes here. There's not a lot of lighting. We're seeing a lot of uh, trash in the storm drain. Um, neighbors have may have complaints about low lighting. Like, you have to keep building and building and building. A lot of these are capital infrastructure improvements. And again, it sounds uncool and unsexy, but this is the stuff that people want. Mm -hmm. This is the stuff that people need. And so we have to make sure that wherever you live, that your housing is safe, that you're able to stay there because you can afford to live there. There's no entity trying to kick you out and displace you because of gentrification. And that when resources does come into your community, it's what the folks actually want because they have asked for it. We do a lot of envisioning and imagining and a lot of planning processes. People will show up time and time again for that. And God bless the people who compensate people for their ideas. But then it's like, but when does the rubber hit the road? Where is the money to actually take what our neighbors are asking for and make it a reality? So the call to action, we are in budget season. I feel like we're always in budget season. But do not be afraid to talk to your city councilor. Do not be afraid to talk to your delegates and your state senators. And it may seem like these people don't care. They do care. Because one of the, the complaints that we hear all the time is, well, if y'all have a problem with this, it's not documented. We don't know about it. And I'm kind of like, okay, well, let's just show you en masse. We gonna pull up and then y'all gonna be able to have to address these mm -hmm. issues. We need the money. Where the money at, y'all? Mm -hmm. Shake the coins loose. Mm -hmm. Q Wu Tang's cash rules everything listen, around. Listen, <laughs> dollar, dollar bills, y'all. Um, as we are wrapping up this conversation, um, thank you so much. Um, I, I learned a lot, uh, as always. Um, and you, you put it in common sense. Like, that's always the thing that I like about this show is that, you know, we'll use a bunch of fancy, fancy, we make it real. Um, is there, and I and I'm and I'm gonna ask this question, and you might be like, okay, I don't know if I understand it, but is there anything being done in the green space arena that's hurting us? Mm, yes. As people that don't look like us are leading charges yes. and thinking that their <laughs> ways are best, but is anything hurting us in this space? Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna find a very tactful way of putting this. <clears throat> Let me clear my throat on this one. <laughs> Let me clear my throat. No, you giving all the What is it? What are you doing, Michael Paul? Like, what are you having today? I love it. Um, funding inequities. Mm. There are 
a lot of white-led environmental organizations that have robust staff and they have grant writers and they're capable of securing federal and state dollars for projects. The problem is that a lot of these organizations, they have to continue to raise money. And so they go after these grants and they're making up these projects without any consultation from the community. And so you can go into a neighborhood, <clears throat> and a great example of that is if you are on Ruffin Road going towards uh, like Davy Gardens or whatever, and you see these trees, and you're like, who planted these trees here? Did anybody ask for that? It's a, it's a sad bunch of, like, of trees. And it's sad because I'm like, nobody wanted those trees there. Nobody's taking care of them. A lot of organizations, they get this money, they go into spaces, they do a project, and then they walk away. Mm -hmm. That's hurtful mm -hmm. because you didn't get community buy-in. You didn't get additional monies to continue investing in those areas. You walked away and just patted yourself on the back. And then you want to come to organizations that are led by black and brown folks and be like, can you do the community-facing work for us later? Just give us the money. <laughs> just pass through the money. You got grant writers? Just be like, hey, you know what? How much do you need? We're going to write you into this, and we're just going to give you the money. At times, it feels like a lot of white environmentalists, and, and I emphasis on a lot, they mean well, but they don't always do well. Paternalism. Mm. It's, and I'm like, y'all... We are not in the same boat. We don't have the same experiences here. And so what I really want folks to be mindful of is how work is getting done. Who is it benefiting? Mm -hmm. Right. And what are you really trying to do? Are you trying to dismantle our systemic um, like systemic uh, problems? Like, are you trying to be anti-racist? Do you really want women to lead? How are you investing in young people, not just to give them something to do for a few minutes, but like, what does the trajectory of their life actually looks like? Grant timelines don't match up with long-term timelines. Mm. They just don't. So for us at Southside Relief and some of the other black and brown led organizations in the city, we are aiming for black liberation. We want black and brown folks to have everything that they need. You want to live in this house? Great. You can afford it. You can stay here. And we're going to give you all of the amenities and services that our government is supposed to be able to provide for you. That's what we are aiming for. So like all of these white leg groups who are just like, we got to get a grant to get a grant and they're going to plant some trees. That's cute. But planting trees does not actually dismantle racism. Mm. It doesn't. I'm going to leave it on that note. Wow. I, think, I mean, and I, can we end it on that note too? Yeah. I mean, because that's <laughs> a drop the that's, mic. That's a mic drop. That's a mic drop. <laughs> yeah. Pick, yeah, pick yeah. It up, drop yeah. It. Please don't. Please don't because we might not be able to buy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, once again, talk, tell everyone how they could donate and get involved with Southside Relief and then also how they can listen to your radio show as well. 
You are so sweet. Um, so, folks, if you want to learn more about our organization, you can visit southsiderelief.org. That's Southside, R-E-L-E-A-F, like a leaf, dot org. Um, you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter um, at Southside Relief. And if you want to hear me kind of do a little bit what Kelly does <laughs> and just kind of ramble and go off on some of our leaders from time to time, <laughs> Um, it's Women in Politics on WRAR. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. This, this was great. Is, yeah, thank you, right? I'm I was like, like, I can keep going, but, but you know. And, and, <laughs> and for the producers to tell us to keep going, too, that means this was a good conversation. Oh, and maybe, hopefully, we'll bring you on maybe later on in the year as things are starting to change, policies are, are coming into play or not um, coming into play, and then really where people are putting their money. Um, we can look at that a little bit down the line. All right. So once again, you are listening to and watching After the Monuments, a real talk about race with Michael Paul Williams and Kelly Lemon. We also, before I end this, do not forget to check out Michael Paul Williams' columns with Richmond Times Dispatch. You can see that in print, and you can also check that out online at richmond.com. We'll talk to you next time. After the Monuments is a Virginia Video Network production and produced by Matt Pacilli, Michael Paul Williams, and me, Kelly Lemon. Technical direction and editing from Bill Barksdale, executive production from Paul Farrell, Diane Salvatore, and Paige Mudd. Will Royer provides studio support, our artwork is by Krishna Mathis. I'm Kelly Lemon, and we'll see you next week on After the Monuments. Huge thanks to Massey Cancer Center for being our After the Monuments sponsor.